Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I'd like to give a few clarifying comments. Uh, first, uh, someone brought up concerns about my statement on oxygen production being primarily from the sea, and I did want to clarify that I am not an advocate of everyone playing Paul Bunyan and going out and cutting down the trees. Trees are important, not only habitats for little furry creatures or flying animals, but also for uh, oxygen production, of course, and building products, paper, that sort of thing. So we're thankful for that, and we do want to be good stewards. Secondarily, I heard from some of you that some of you are now adverse to eating of figs because of the way that these inverted flowers get pollinated. Uh, Yes, the fig is an inverted flower, it's not actually a fruit, uh, and the figs are pollinated by wasps. Now, it is important to know this, that not only has God designed this incredible symbiosis where you have two distinct organisms, the wasp and the flower, that work together in a way that cannot be explained by evolution by chance, but it also benefits man in that when the wasp goes into that inverted flower, lays eggs, and stays there, it is important to know that the flower produces a material called racine. And racine, or racin, different pronunciations, that actually dissolves the wasp and that material is absorbed by the flower to make what we eat as the fig. So, rest comfortable as you eat your figgy pudding this Christmas. You are not eating whole wasps. Okay? So I just wanted to give that clarifying comment. Enjoy your figgy pudding, boys and girls. <clears throat> as an illustration of the very fact that uh, we're going to illustrate with a number of points here can, under common grace. That's additional information. Scientists don't always work with complete information, but God by common grace has enabled man to not only not be as sinful as he could be, but man generally is able to do good things. And so you find people who are not believers who take care of their family, who are honorable employees, who are good citizens. That's not only God's restraining grace, but his common grace, whereby he allows people to do good things. Common grace is God giving much more than deserved to everyone, saved and unsaved. In terms of the creation discussion, common grace has important outworkings as followings. Scientific observations of non-believers from general revelation are often accurate and honestly presented. Non-believers are also able to recognize design in their scientific observations. That principle has led to the growing intelligent design movement. It's not only something that believers are in, enamored of, but also unbelievers. They may not be fully theologically formed, but they are recognizing that these things could not have happened over 
4.5 billion years by random actions of chance. And thirdly, non-believing scientists are also often critical of the scientific consensus. So that when you hear about global warming, there are scientists who would say, I'm not certain I agree with that. There are scientists who are not believers who would argue against evolution or particular evolutionary theses. So, there are limits, however, of common grace. Of course, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man receives not the things of the spirit, and he cannot, for they are spiritually discerned. And also Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord. So, there are limits to everyone's ability to grasp. So there are limits to both believer and unbeliever. First, everyone is finite and has limited ability, and these are on your notes, to know all accurate data from all time. Secondly, everyone will make unintentional errors based on misinterpretation of available information, both believer and unbeliever. Third, everyone has different levels of intellect and training. Fourth, preconceived notions and presuppositional biases can lead to errors. And the final limit that I've described here is this. Some from either group will intentionally seek to deceive for a variety of self-interest-based reasons. So, why do Christians and non-Christians view science differently? Well, again, as on your notes, Christians view the God of the Bible as the first cause. The recognition of, of God as creator separates Christian understanding from the scientific consensus regarding evolution. The non-Christians must start and find a first cause rather than the God of the Bible. Secondarily, Christians are able to have a broad view of science which enable an appreciation and a critique of scientific consensus. Christians should be able to recognize the presuppositions of those who do not reflect the affections of believers. Fourth, third, Christians are able to recognize the character of God, that he is omnipotent and does things according to his own thoughts and ways which are outside of our understanding. And last, Christians are able to fully appreciate science. They are also able to appreciate God, a God who operates outside of naturalism and human understanding. Abraham Kuyper, who is a theologian and a philosopher, said this very important statement that I have on your notes. Believers may not retreat to their ecclesiastical corner and, satisfied with simply having faith, abandon the building of the temple of science to unbelievers as though science does not concern them. Conversely, our duty is that we who confess Christ Jesus must take hold of science as an instrument for propagating our faith conviction. And so Christians should indeed involve themselves in the sciences. We should not see the sciences or scientists as all inherently evil, but part of God's goodness to all men. Well, last week I had a discussion 
uh, with someone and they brought up a very important point through all of this information that we're discussing and reviewing in a very shallow way it's important that we all remember some very simple questions and these are questions that we talk about around the Thanksgiving table how do you get life from non-life how do you get something from nothing and how do you get order from disorder in the beginning of our lessons we talked about maybe having one thing that we could talk about that would be simple and easy to remember and that's ver those are three very important questions that I would encourage everyone to have at their fingertips well as we begin there are some critically important definitions spontaneous generation is the first one and as you have on your paper it's a supposed production of living organisms from non-living matter as inferred from the apparent appearance in some supposedly sterile environments another definition biogenesis biogenesis is the theory that living things can only be produced by other living things and third abiogenesis that's the supposed transformation of inanimate matter into living matter which sounds quite a bit like spontaneous generation however Thomas Huxley about 1870 coined the phrase both biogenesis and abiogenesis specifically to go away from the growing understanding that spontaneous generation was impossible so he created a new term terms and vocabulary are important we see that today in our culture with some of the racial issues and some of the redefinition of terms with regard to human sexuality and the redefinition of terms okay terms are important and Huxley knew this ancient Greek philosophers had talked about spontaneous generation and it set in mankind's mind like concrete the abandonment of spontaneous generation changed medicine food production and the health of multiple millions of people to appreciate the immensity of this around 1860 the microscopic world of the cell was just beginning to be understood single-celled organisms had been recognized for some time but the fact that all living things are made of reproducing cells was just vaguely being recognized now there was an important character that came along at this time Louis Pasteur Louis Pasteur a Frenchman and he countered the prevailing attitude that fermentation was a peculiar type of chemical reaction inherent to non-living organic residues so Pasteur performed the famous uh, experiments that you see on your paper and on the diagram that I have projected on the screen you'll remember the the vial of meat that was putrefying that was starting to rot and he covered it uh, with a mesh and then he had these three containers open covered with mesh and then sealed and guess where the maggots came the maggots came in the first one sometimes with very small flies the maggots would go through the mesh but in the sealed one 
no maggots erupted. Very famous experiment. In the same way, he did an experiment with broth. And you see the description there. The broth had different types of necks on the flask. One of the necks was open to the atmosphere. Another neck would allow some transfer. And the third neck had a trap that would prevent spores and bacteria from entering. So he sterilized all three, left them open, semi-open, and totally closed. And of course, the one that was totally closed did not spontaneously generate anything. Well, about that time, Darwin had begun his theorizing. And it countered what Louis Pasteur had discovered. And it was gaining momentum. Pasteur's discovery was groundbreaking. He is highly honored as one of the great biologists of all time. He pioneered the study of molecular asymmetry, discovered that microorganisms cause fermentation and disease, originated the process of pasteurization, Louis Pasteur, pasteurization, saved the beer, wine, and silk industries in France, for which many people say, magnifique, c'est marvelleux, and developed vaccines against anthrax and rabies. The spontaneous origin of life would have long ago become a disproved myth of the past because of Pasteur's work. But the establishment fought back. Darwin, in 1859, advanced the idea, which was not new, not even then, that God was not needed to explain the diversity of life on Earth. But he was too cautious to overtly promote the spontaneous origin of life in his origin of species. Huxley, Thomas Huxley, that handsome fellow that you see there, who was known as Darwin's bulldog, was aggressively and successfully promoting Darwinism and boldly proclaiming the ability of life to come from non-life. Okay, just like Copernicus had pushback. Galileo had pushback against prevailing ideas, against common knowledge. These men had pushback against Pasteur's observations. Huxley's overt intention was to oppose the teaching of the Bible on the origin of life. And today, scientific literature continues on the path Huxley laid down, building on the Greek thought before him that life arose in the past from a primordial warm soup and evolved to its present state of complexity. Well, you also had the return of Ernst Haeckel. Do you remember ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny? Do you remember the picture that we showed concerning the embryonic development of different species and how their development mirrored their past. Matter of fact, those of you who are Star Trek aficionados will recognize that there was a Star Trek Next Generation episode which repeated this myth, where the crew members all changed into their previous evolutionary past. Okay, I think I'm pretty much alone on being the Star Trek geek in the room. <laughs> Anybody remember that episode? Okay, 
crickets. I am all alone on this. Well, Ernst Henkel came back and he uh, was again guilty of fraud. I have Moderna, Mondera fallacy. It's actually Monera, M-O-N-E-R-A. I think that's because Moderna, Moderna the, uh, the uh, vaccine is so prevalent nowadays, I threw another D in there. Well, anyway, Ernst not only was guilty of the fraud of ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, but he also believed that he had found uh, these ill-defined blobs of protoplasm that ge were generated in the sea. First, he tried to find them on land. He couldn't find them on land. He said, well, they must be in the sea. And then he said, okay, here are pictures of what these things look like. So he uh, provided pictures of eukaryotic cells, cells with no nucleus. And he said, they've got to be in the sea. And sure enough, guess what he found? Little blobs that were in the sea that did not have a nucleus. Well, here's the problem. The problem was that it was actually a precipitate of a lime sulfate product that appears when you mix alcohol and seawater. So someone was having a little bit too much wine, mixed it with seawater, and they found a precipitate, something settling in the bottom of the glass that they Turned, termed these moneras. Well, they were also called Bathybius. Well, the Bathybius disappeared from science as a ridiculous error and a ridiculous credulity, which were the results of theoretical preconceptions, speculations, and imagination. Bathybius, however, was accepted, these monera, because it was in harmony with Darwin's speculations and Mr. Haeckel's presentation. The episode highlights the double standards of those who portray creationism as a fanatical anti-science religion and evolution as a dispassionate, objective science. Evolutionists have, on the whole, always had a very strong bias and religious dimension in their quest to explain the universe without a creator. Evolutionists had that bias. Despite the spectacular failure of all experiments to demonstrate abiogenesis or spontaneous generation, they have spread this unproven doctrine far and wide. Well, let's talk about the problem of the prim primordial warm soup theory. Millie Urey in 1953, uh, that was Harold Urey of the University of Chicago and his 23-year-old graduate student Stanley Miller designed this apparatus. And this apparatus had a primitive atmosphere that was encased in a flask of vial. It also had a condensing column and a trap. Water was heated up. It created what they believed to be an appropriate atmosphere. And then it was subjected to a high uh, voltage spark and then material that would have formed would have dropped down and collected in the collection trap, the cooling trap. Well, this experiment resulted in some product that was found at the bottom of this collecting trap. And it created some tar-like substances. It created some molecules that were different from the water and 
the atmosphere that was supposedly created. Well, this picture, how many of you have seen this picture before in your science textbooks? Okay. It's still in science textbooks today, but it has been disproven for several reasons, for several reasons. One is the atmosphere. The thesis was that in an atmosphere dominated by water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen, amino acids could naturally form. The problem is that the accepted picture of the Earth's atmosphere has changed. It was probably oxygen-rich with some nitrogen similar to our atmosphere today. Another problem is the apparatus had a cold trap. So if material was created, it would have a safe place to go and be protected from the harsh atmosphere that was involved in that high voltage electrical spark region. Third problem, the product, the variety of molecules that were created had a greater reactivity for amino acids than the amino acids did for each other. So instead of the amino acids forming what would be a primitive protein or DNA strand, they formed with these other reactive materials like the tarry substance I mentioned. So they weren't reacting with each other. Next, the naturally occurring mixture of amino acids that formed was racemic meaning both left-handed and right-handed molecules were formed. That's a difficult concept, but suffice it to say, like your Lego blocks only fit one way, now they have to be in the right orientation, or magnets with the north and south pole, the same thing happens with the molecular structure of these primitive amino acids. But the evolutionary model was not fitting because only left handed amino acids occur in living cells. So this artificially designed experiment did not produce amino acids that we find and see in nature. The theory was that you would have the same building blocks, but you don't. Next, oxygen. The researchers used oxygen, an oxygen-free environment, mainly because the Earth's putative primitive stage was seen, or their atmosphere was seen, as widely believed not to have contained any oxygen. They believe this because laboratory experiments show that chemical evolution, as accounted for in present models, would largely be inhibited by oxygen. You've heard of the term oxidation, where oxygen joins up with things and helps break down molecules. Well, this model had no oxygen and it's now believed by scientific testing that there was an oxygen-rich environment in the early years of the Earth. Finally, concentration. The concentration of the material that was produced was much, much, much heavier than you would have expected in a large ocean environment. Yuri speculated that the oceans of the ancient Earth must have consisted of about a 10% solution of organic compounds that would be very favorable for life's origin. Well, that level of organic matter would equal a concentration of about 100 times higher than a modern American city's sewer water.
total amount of existing organic compounds on the earth today could not produce even a fraction of that needed to achieve a concentration that's high in the oceans. A farmer, uh, excuse me, former law professor, Philip E. Johnson, summed up the Miller-Urey research problem in that statement I have on your paper, and he said this in his book, Darwin on Trial, because post-Darwinian biology has been dominated by materialistic dogma, the biologists have to pretend that organisms are a lot simpler than they are. Life itself must be merely chemistry. Assemble the right chemicals and life emerges. DNA must likely also be a product of chemistry alone. There's an exhibit in the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and it says volcanic gases plus lightning equal DNA equals life. When asked about this fable, the museum spokesman acknowledged that it was simplified but said it was basically true. Well, the conclusion is this. It is now believed that the Miller-Urey line of research is simple a revival of the antique notion of spontaneous generation because it suggests that this primordial soup with the right combination of amino acids, nucleic acids, and perchance a lightning bolt or two, life might have begun spontaneously. Now, when scientists, as we've talked about before, when scientists come up with these issues, these problems, what they'll do is they'll come up with an alternative. So the alternative is that, all right, instead of Miller's experimental apparatus, what you have is lightning and the atmosphere happening on top of mountain streams where the water is, you know, cascading down into a protected pool. So, again, just an unlikely scenario just trying to get around the problems. Well, let's talk about another problem, shall we? Horseshoe crabs, which are really not totally horseshoe-shaped and they're really not a crab. Closer to a spider in terms of its function. But... These creatures that are readily found in fossil evidence have aged pretty well. I'd like to have aged that well. When I look in the mirror, I see an old man. And I say to Kim, where did this old guy come from? What is he, what is he doing in the house? And she says, you old fool, that is you. And it's true. I'm aging. Not as well as these horseshoe crabs that really have not changed over the supposed hundred million years that they have been around. Their appearance hasn't changed much. They're known as living fossils, creatures that closely resemble their fossilized ancestors. Creationists and evolutionists note this. They're identical to living species. Well, God's design for this crab is in turn provision for us. First off, let's talk about the eyes. The eyes are amazing. The uniquely designed feature of the horseshoe crab is its visual system. It has 10 eyes. Two largest are the lateral compound eyes with 1,000 photoreceptors each. Those lateral eyes contain rod and cone similar in structure to our eyes, although human eyes are simple, not compound. The similarities between horseshoe crabs and human eyes have led to a better understanding of human vision. The horseshoe crab also has five additional eyes on the top side of its shell. Each of these eyes is specifically designed to detect ultraviolet light so that the horseshoe crab can see reflected moonlight in its water and above the water. Since the horseshoe, life, since the horseshoe crab's life cycle depends on spawning peaks during new and full moons, those five dorsal eyes are vital for the horseshoe crab getting a date. Two eyes on the horseshoe's crab underside, near the mouth, keep its orientation while it's swimming. 
So it has lights and eyes underneath its shell. And then there's an eye on its tail that serves as an aid in helping the animal keep its day and night cycles synchronized. There's also another, another amazing thing about the horseshoe crab. It's blood. It has blue blood. We today are beneficiaries of the horseshoe crab's blue blood. The blood contains an element that enables the horseshoe crab to detect and isolate endotoxins that enter its system. And so, these endotoxins from the blue blood of the horseshoe crab have been used in the testing of the COVID-19 vaccines to ensure an absence of toxicities. Pretty amazing. You can't take a horseshoe crab and throw it in a pot of boiling water and crack open its you know, juicy, delicious claws. But God has provided this way of understanding and identifying toxins for us. Now, it's important to know that of the horseshoe crabs that are used for this, it's, it's a risky prospect for the horseshoe crab itself. An estimated 10 to 30% of horseshoe crabs that are used for medical bleeding don't survive when returned to the water. And those that do survive struggle to thrive. So scientists are looking at other ways of conserving and harvesting methods to meet the increased demand of horseshoe crabs and to minimize the need of their blood by developing the use of alternative endotoxin tests. So the crab's enduring design is a confirmation of God's provision both for this unique creature to survive and for humans to benefit from its design. You know, Proverbs 12 verse 10 says, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, and the ten but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So we do have a stewardship responsibility here. Compassionate animal care is a biblical principle of creation stewardship. Well, let's keep going, because we have another wonderful creature to talk about, and that is the hagfish. The hagfish is a jawless fish. Modern hagfish are blind and their eyes are missing so many parts that they hardly, hardly qualify as eyes. But ancient hagfish, fossilized hagfish, had full eyes. Today, hagfish may have a melanin spot where you would expect an eye to be, but it's actually underneath the skin. They're also missing parts of the eye. But when you look at the fossilized remnants of hagfish, you can detect the critical structures that are very much like our eyes, a camera type eye that has not only muscles and melanin pigmentation, but also a lens and an iris that opens and closes. Until recently, the hagfish was seen as a living example of an intermediate form in the stepwise evolution of eyes. But the discovery of these fossil creatures that are hagfish that had fully formed eyes is a conundrum. So they're not a transitionary form. The best guess is that they're actually a degenerative form that there was a loss of information, not a gain of genetic information. And that's a real problem with evolution. 
most evolutionary theory speculates that there was a gain of genetic information, new material, new design, new process that would result in an advanced specimen. And here instead, you see that creatures that are supposedly hundreds of millions of years old have degenerated. In other words, without a simple series of simple-eyed fossils to show the apparent steps in eye evolution, evolutionists have had to look to living animals for support. They assume, for instance, that observable, and listen, listen this, this is important, observable embryonic organ development retraces or recapitulates evolutionary stages. Embryonic organ development recapitulates evolutionary stages. Does that sound familiar? Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Embryonic development mirrors evolution. Again, this theory is extant. It's existing. It's still being used. The conclusion is that these hagfish are more degenerative than evolving. The information to make eyes in the first place was acquired by creation, and we don't know how it was lost. Well, the question is, how have evolutionists responded? Did they concede on eye evolution and say that the hagfish was not? No. They still assume that the vertebrae eye evolved through a series of steps, but presume the fossil evidence, bit of visual history, remains undiscovered, deeper in history, and perhaps lost to the ravages of time and chance. Well, a little bit more about the hagfish. Uh, we don't have the family here that uh, witnessed this accident. There was an accident in uh, 2017, July 14, 2017, where a truck full of hagfish overturned on an Oregon highway. The animals were destined for South Korea where they are eaten as a delicacy, but instead they were strewn across a stretch of Highway 101, covering the road, and at least this Hyundai Elantra, Hyundai is a Korean manufactured car, in slime. The hagfish is known for its ability to produce incredible amounts of slime. And you see the figure on the diagram here is an electron microscope uh, magnification of one of these slime cells which can expand to over 10,000 times its original size. These individual strands are thinner than a human hair but can expand and get wider by five or six times that amount. So this truck overturned, the hagfish were very agitated, and the cells that were underneath the scales of the hagfish produced this material, which is a protection against predators. And now, boys and girls, we're going to watch a little video, if we're ready for that, and this video will show us what the hagfish slime looks like and how God created this to protect the creature from its predators.
because when it gets agitated, it releases this material and it gums up the mouth of the predators. So here you have one of these lovely creatures, the hagfish. A fish so ancient, it has remained unchanged for 300 million years. It's a living fossil, boys and girls. This is the hagfish. Its velvet smooth skin lacks scales and slithers along the ocean floor. It has a skull, but no spine. Tiny holes run along the sides of its wriggling body. Some for breathing and some for sliming. Mm, but its slime. most bizarre feature is its mouth. Like something out of an alien movie. And that's how it eats and digests these things. It's a great scavenger. It'll go in this jawless of a maw fish, eat it from the inside out. For mincing up dead bodies. Multiple rows of sharp teeth are packed on two bony plates. With its single nostril, it picks up the sweet scent of death. Mm, sweet smell of death. A feast has arrived. <laughs> It has no fins, but its paddle-like tail makes light work of swimming. The hagfish latches on, and its mouth goes to work. Don't you love the drama in this guy's voice? The hagfish latches Flesh on. Flesh is ripped from the carcass and shoved down its toothy throat. It actually absorbs Soon, food through its it's skin a frenzy as well. of multiple mincing mouths. And to keep other hungry onlookers at bay, the hagfish excrete copious amounts of slime into the water. A shy shark snatches one, but ends up with a mouthful of snot instead. You can see the strands that expand. In minutes, the hagfish will strip the carcass to bone. Okay, that's good. Thank you. All right. Uh, won't you all go to the uh, Korean restaurants in town months. and uh, enjoy some hagfish? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, while there are challenges to those people who would adhere to an evolutionary process for our origins and creation. We also have challenges as well. There's a lovely hagfish. We have a challenge as Bible believers in this Leviathan. Now Leviathan is described in the book of Job in other places as well. And God asked Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? or press down his tongue with a cord. Job also records, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before him? Well, as we look at what Leviathan is, the question is, is he a mythical creature? Is it hyperbole? 
Is it an earthly creature like a crocodile? Is it an earthly creature who represents a spiritual force? Like Babylon. Babylon is a real city, but also Babylon is used as a spiritual representation. Well, Leviathan is described in the Bible, and Leviathan has specific descriptions that are on your piece of paper. He cannot be captured by fishhook. Weapons are ineffective against him. No human can tame him. His body is impenetrable. His teeth are sharp. He has a back that's made of a row of shields. Very strong. When he raises up, the mighty are afraid. When he moves along the banks of a river, he leaves his mark in the mud. So a question that comes up, if Leviathan is a mystical creature, a mythical creature, what is the point of this lengthy description of him? Now, some generally accept that Leviathan is a crocodile that roamed the banks of the River Nile, but there are reasons to not accept that. However, there are likely suggestions from extinct marine reptiles as to the identification of Leviathan. And here you see some pictures. And if you look carefully on these, on these representations, you'll see the skeletal remains and you'll see a man standing next to these particular representations. And this one here, the Sarkosuch Imperator, the super crocodile, is one that's considered to be a possible representation of Leviathan. Now, there's a difficulty here. There doesn't seem to be a 100% matchup of the physical features of Leviathan. There are problems with identifying Sarkosuchus as Leviathan because it doesn't really fit the description of Leviathan as a twisting sea serpent. And it has no known mechanism to breathe fire. Well, the description causes scholars who accept the crocodile interpretation to argue that these verses are hyperbolic. But this is an unnecessary conclusion. Just because there is no creature alive today that, that can breathe fire does not mean that there is never such a creature that is now extinct. There is an example in history. In the Lindisfarne Ireland, there is a recording of Vikings who attacked a monastery. And in the monastery, there was a record that these Vikings saw fiery dragons who were seen flying in the air. I have no idea what that means. But there are creatures today, like the Bombardier beetle, and we'll talk about that later on, that has these two chemical sacs in its abdomen that when mixed creates a very caustic acid it's of hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone that can burn you as a defense against predators well conclusion we cannot know for certain what extinct or existing creature god is referring to we do know that job 41 certainly describes leviathan as a real creature that only the god of creation could master. So, we as Bible-believing Christians who believe that he is the source of creation have difficulties too.
So while it's good to be recognizing of the problems of common grace and the limitations of everyone, it is good to be humble and continue to study God's creation, to look for his invisible attributes, his divine nature being clearly seen through that which is made. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get into birds and God's incredible design in birds. Questions? Observations? Who's going out to the Korean restaurant and getting some hagfish? If you don't like the hagfish itself, try the hagfish soup, which is primarily composed of the slime. On that note, we're going to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for how marvelous these creatures are that you have designed, not only for their protection, not only for their incredible display of your glory and your creativity, but also, Lord, for our benefit, whether it be for food or medicines, we thank you that you have created these things and display your glory, your majesty. Help us, O oh Lord, to continue to study your world, that we would give you glory in every step of the way, that we would not fall prey to false and foolish notions, but that instead we would trust you and communicate that trust to others. And we praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.